right, everyone. Good to be with you this morning as always. Let's prepare our hearts for our time in God's Word this morning. Quite a bit to, to go through, so let's commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your presence with us, that we can lift our voices to praise your name, to even leading up to this message to ponder your lordship, that you are the one crowned with many crowns. Lord, we would desire to live in such a way as your Holy Spirit enables us, to live as uh, faithful subjects of you, the King of the universe, to trust in you with all that we are, that our faith would be in you and no other. Lord, we know that in that we can also trust in your word to speak to us clearly, that it is your complete, truthful, and inerrant word. May we be blessed by it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, let's get into it. Second Peter. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Second Peter. Our topic via the sermon title is simply called Posers, an Introduction. And of course, what that implies, as we will see very quickly through the text, is that Peter is unmasking and denouncing those who have crept into the church, many of them without the saints' knowledge, without them taking notice, and spreading all manner of false doctrine. And one important highlight from the sermon last Lord's Day was to draw our attention to Peter's rather harsh, and even unnerving language to say that there comes a time when the church can entertain false teachers no longer. There is a point to investigate when someone brings in what appears at first to be a strange teaching. But there comes a time, often very quickly, when a line is crossed to where you reason no longer with them. They're even called unreasoning animals by Peter in verse 12 of this chapter. The church is simply tasked with driving them from the congregation, to not giving them any quarter, to not giving them any platform. And of course, that takes a lot of wisdom, takes a lot of discretion to know exactly when the time is for that. But we can use Peter as an example of how we are to view false teachers who sow these destructive heresies. And perhaps even more importantly, we see what God thinks of them. We see the Lord's knowledge and determination of this matter. And so no punches are pulled in a text like this. And I would say by way of application, the same should be of us, should be true of us. That we stand for the truth to such a degree where we give them no platform in our midst. So jumping into it, Our passage this morning is verses 1 through 3. Please follow along as I read. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their, destruct, their, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
So even in these initial introductory verses, Peter does give us a flavor of what is to come. Very clearly emphasizing the presence and danger of these false prophets. Got about a list of five here. Five things that Peter is drawing our attention to regarding these false teachers. And of course, as we continue to unpack chapter 2, we will see uh, further characteristics of these individuals. The first comes from verse 1. That is their determination. We find that false teachers have always been determined to infiltrate the people of God and so false teaching among them. And we draw that from the fact that Peter says, just as there will also be false teachers among you. There have been and there will continue to be. False teachers will arise in your midst. So be on guard and be vigilant. Because they will come to you as sheep dressed, or as wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That brings us to the second characteristic. Simply this, their deceit. They will deceive you. They will use means of trickery to lead you astray. They, will be, they have to be secretive about it. It seems as though there is something within the mind of these false teachers which, in which they know that they are giving false doctrine. They know that these teachings that they bring in are strange to the Christian community. They are not part of the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. There is a deviation that is clear. They are secret and they are destructive. And we note very clearly that the faith that has been handed down out in the open, proclaimed from the housetops, do not destroy, but rather they build up the church. So if a teaching is destructive, it's fair to say that the teaching is not part of this body of truth that the apostles were preaching concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to the third one. The third one is simply this, their denial, the denial of these posers, of these ones who are masquerading as true teachers of apostolic doctrine. So he says this, start from the beginning again, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Even denying the master who bought them. So there is their fundamental denial. And we never want to underestimate the seriousness of this. There is an outright denial of God in their teaching. And we'll figure out in what way that is so. But this, is, this verse is often seen to be one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. And of course, the Apostle Peter is no stranger to writing some difficult things that have to be unpacked, that have to be thoroughly investigated in order to get a clear uh, understanding of the intent of that particular passage. And of course, this verse of denying the master who bought them is peculiar to us because we are, as a Reformed Baptist church, teach the doctrines of grace. In other words, we are a Calvinist church. We teach and emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation and His lone prerogative to save, to save who He will for His own sovereign purposes. So when it comes to salvation, God is unilaterally in charge. And there is nothing that man can do to usurp 
his role in salvation in any way. So why I bring that up is this. This verse, or this passage rather, is often introduced as the Calvinist killer for this simple reason. It says these are people, these false teachers in question, do this. They deny the master who bought them. So at least in two ways, right? If, if, if we are to attack the doctrines of grace with this particular uh, part of the verse, we're saying two things. One, that people, if they are bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, they can actually lose their salvation. They can forfeit the saving work of Christ. And on another level, we would say that Christ died only for the elect. He died for the redeemed. And so, if indeed they are denying the Master who bought them, then clearly Christ died for all. See, what we teach here from this pulpit in our Bible studies is that when Christ died, He, did, he died a definitive atoning death for His sheep. We say that His death was entirely efficacious. It was entirely sufficient. That when He died on that cross, He actually paid the penalty for sinners. We put it this way often, that Christ's death did not make man savable. Man was already savable. But we say, rather, that when Christ died, He actually saved people. His death was a saving act. He actually paid the penalty for His sheep. So if He did that, then it forever and irrevocably secured salvation for all for whom He died. And so we would further declare that Christ paid the... We would deny that Christ paid the penalty for unbelievers, for if He had died for them, their sins are atoned for. See, that's, that's what we call double jeopardy. If their sins have already been paid for, then there is nothing, there is no penalty left to pay. So when Christ died, He paid indeed the full penalty for all who would believe. And so, of course, if He died for them, they could never be condemned. They would believe and be saved. So if this is truly the case, what this verse seems to say is something otherwise. And that is the challenge. So we're going to take some time this morning uh, to go through it, and if that's, all, if that's all we get to, then so be it, God be glorified in that. So if these false teachers are denying the master who bought them, them, look at your text, them referring to the false teachers, and the word bought refers to redemption through Christ's blood, then it would, be, they would appear to be saying that Christ did indeed die for all, that his substitutionary death was a universal one. But it is also, of course, saying that one is not truly secure in Christ. This all undermines Christ's work on the cross and his sacrifice, at least partially, is in vain. So we have to follow this train of thought here. And I would add this very clearly. If there are any questions about this text or about what we call not limited atonement so much, but as particular triumphant redemption, then I am more than willing to uh, attend to those questions. But listen to what John Gill says. Whenever redemption by Christ is spoken of, the price is usually mentioned, or some circumstance or another which fully determines the sense. And he gives the example of Acts 20.28. 20, so, the point that Gill is making is that when Peter says bought in this particular verse, there's, no, there's nothing... Uh, particular which leads us to believe 
that the bot in question was an atoning death. Because as Acts 20.28 says, he purchased the church of God with his own blood. So there's atonement language there. And so the point, of course, is that in this verse in 2 Peter, there's no atonement language. We, si- we simply have the word from the Greek agorazo, which means to buy, like a marketplace purchase. So listen to what Gill concludes. It says, whereas here is not the least hint of anything of this kind. Add to this that such who are redeemed by Christ are the elect of God only, the people of Christ, his sheep and friends and church who are never left to deny him so as to perish eternally. So see, we, we find our security ultimately in the knowledge that Christ died for us. Then he says, for could such be lost or deceived or be deceived finally and totally by damnable heresies such as Peter's dealing with here? and bring on themselves swift destruction, Christ's purchase would be in vain, and the ransom price would be for naught. We, would, we, could, we could very justifiably call into question the saving nature of Christ's blood, because we would find that it is wasted on so many. And so I would conclude by the charge that this refers that to the fact that Christ died for all, and that you can lose your salvation Um, I would like to respond to this and give you some things to think about because this verse is very difficult, and even after spending three weeks on it, I still have not landed my plane to say, yes, it definitively means this. What I would like to do for our purposes this morning is an exercise of taking into into our minds many things, uh, many things into account whereby we can really help give a greater understanding of this. And I will say at the outset, the point of this verse is not to teach us the extent or the depth of the atonement. We have, to, we have to start with the context. The context is false teachers that have infiltrated the church and now are engaging in some form of spiritual apostasy from God. So that is our starting point, is, is the context. So I want to give you some things to think about, and we'll go through some possibilities. But we want to start off by asking ourselves, who is the master in question? Who is this master that is being denied? It's not specified if it is God the Father or Jesus Christ in particular. So that brings an element of of mystery to what this text is really saying. Also, what is the meaning of bot? How do we understand bot? We've just said, from this very context, we cannot automatically assume that the buying in question refers to substitutionary atonement. So carry those thoughts with you as we move through some of, these, uh, some of these possibilities. One option is this, considering the words of the Old Testament. Remember, how do we understand Scripture? We compare Scripture with Scripture. Peter, the apostle, draws so much from the Old Testament, so let's try to get in the mind of Peter here. And, and a case for a different uh, interpretation can be made. So Peter says that these false prophets have arisen among you, right? Denying the master who bought them. Well, where do we see this purchased nature? We'll go back to the Old Testament. Who was a purchased people? Who was bought? Israel. Yeah, Israel. So an example of this is Deuteronomy 32, 5 through 6. It says this, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. 
Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who bought you? Did he not buy you, purchase you? So in that sense, we can look at the whole community of Israel composed of true Israel and false Israel. Within that Old Testament community, or Old Covenant community, there were those who truly trusted the Lord and were justified by grace through faith. There were also those who engaged in all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of spiritual deviance. And so they did not truly belong to God, but they were still part of that company proclaimed by the Lord Himself to have been bought. So in that sense, they were all, all of Israel was bought, but not atonement language. Here's another one from Exodus, saying this, Terror and dread shall fall upon them. This is Exodus 15, 16, by the way. Terror and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until the people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased or bought. So all of Israel is seen as a company that has been bought by God. That's how we look at Israel. In the Exodus, God delivered them. He bought them out of the house of slavery. So this is purchase language, not atonement language. So in that sense, God bought all of Israel. And here's why we bring up Israel. We connect that, that whole narrative of God buying Israel, and we, and we use that to, to, to gain an understanding of what's going on here. Much of the false teaching and teachers that were infiltrating the new covenant church in the first century were by apostate Jews. So listen to Philippians 3 too. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. There's a good possibility he's drawing from Old Testament language because of the Judaizing involvement that was going on and afflicting the first century church. So he says, beware of these, these Judaizers who believe that they are the true circumcision, but they are not because they have uncircumcised hearts. Consider Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is doing a significant uh, and an important job of combating these, these Judaizers' doctrine, right? Unless you follow Moses and become circumcised, you cannot be saved. You can't really be justified, right? Justification takes some law. You are not declared righteous by God only through faith. You must add to it. But who was afflicting the Galatian churches? See, the Galatian churches in Asia Minor, right? A Roman province outside of the boundaries of Judea. See, they were, they were scattered all over. We find the same thing in Revelation, right? Close to the sacking of Jerusalem, uh, the Apostle John, speaking the words of Jesus, at least on two occasions, refers to the synagogue of Satan. Those who say they are Jews and are not. I think we have plenty of biblical evidence to say that these are, this is another Judaizing influence. So I underscore this to say that this influence is all over the Roman Empire in the first century. You want to look at it and say, what is the primary heresy the church had to deal with in its infancy in, say, the first 40 years? It was Judaizing. It wasn't so much the paganism of Rome, even though that had some effect, but it was this Judaizing, these, a Jewish sect 
spread all over the Roman Empire that was, uh, they were wriggling their way into these churches and trying to add works or, some, or, or something to the grace that is found in the gospel. And of course, that combination means that it is real, really no gospel at all. So you consider even Romans. Paul had to clarify to the Romans as well. Who is the true Jew? Not the one who is a Jew outwardly, but one who is one inwardly, right? By a circumcision of the heart. But that inward transformation had taken place. It didn't matter your ethnic background. The question was, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in His finished work and nothing else? Are you forsaking your, your own works? Are you denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Him, but only looking to His atoning work alone? That's, that, that's the question. And in that spirit, all men were called to repent, whether Jew or Gentile. We all have the same Lord. We all have the same Savior. And that is Jesus Christ. And so we have a very real challenge here regarding what Peter is saying and what our attention is. So there's a good possibility that he is bringing up the, the, the Old Testament to draw a parallel between what was happening then and what is happening now. Because false teachers within Israel proliferated throughout their, the entire kingdom of Israel. And so, this, and so a similar thing is occurring today amongst the New Covenant Church. Unbelieving Jews are infiltrating and spreading a false gospel. They are leading people astray. Listen to what Stephen Cole has to say. He, he, he concludes this rather well. He says, so Peter here is not giving a theological treatment on the extent of the atonement. Rather, he uses the analogy of God's people being bought by the master to show the heinous nature of the false teacher's sin. They associated with the chosen nation, the church, right? They came in and said, I'm a part of this new covenant community. So there was at least lip service. They attended, remember, they attended the worship services. They were probably baptized, right? They, they probably did life with other Christians. So continuing on Cole's quote, the master bought the church just as God bought or redeemed Israel through the Exodus. Yet these heretics did not obey him. They denied the master who bought them, and the result for them and all that follow them will be swift destruction. See, Jude says the same thing in verse 4. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So this was happening all over the place. This was not an isolated incident. That's why it seems as though as these letters in the New Testament get written, as time goes on, more and more attention is drawn to this sect of people that have infiltrated the church. And it's easy to conclude that the reason the apostles do that is because whatever doctrine they were teaching was a damnable doctrine. It all denied Christ. It denied His saving work. Denied His lordship. Denied His humanity. It all pointed to a denial of God. Here's another thing we want to consider. The master. What is, how do we understand master? Again, he doesn't use the word here, uh, the typical word for, for Lord, like kurios. He uses despotes, the, the word from which we get despot, right? Think of despot, a person who has absolute sovereign control, the power of life and death over you. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar. He would have been a despot. His word was law. How much more? 
do we see that authority vested in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether master is, here is God or Jesus himself. But we have to understand, too, that all judgment, as Jesus himself said, was handed over to the Son. Who is the ultimate despot right now? Is Jesus Christ. He is the undisputed Lord of heaven and earth. Remember what he said before sending the disciples out of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no question that right here, right now, Jesus is the master. He is the despot. Whether you believe that or not, he is who he says he is. That is beyond argumentation. It is truth that we can depend upon and proclaim. He is the ultimate despot. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You don't say that if there is a compromise in your consolidation of power. So again, if he's talking about Christ himself, Christ here is presented as master. I would say an unusual term used if what in view here is speaking of redemption and atonement. So it's used in conjunction with this word, bought. So if the word bot is referring to redemption, it is unusual for the word despot or master to be used with it. But we have to say right away that Christ owns them all. All of heaven and earth is under his authority. So in that sense, yes, he is your master. Even to the unbeliever, he is your master. He is in charge. I think one way of defending this point of view is from Revelation chapter 5, where you have this amazing scene in heaven where the scroll understood as the title deed to all the earth is handed to Christ, right? He's the only one who is worthy to open the scroll, right? John seemed to be worried at first. Is there anyone worthy? Ah, the lamb, the lion of Judah is worthy. So the scroll is handed to Jesus because he's the only one worthy of opening it. And in verse 9, we read this. Let's read through, uh, I think, verse 13. It says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So at least there we have the purchase language. So there's ownership uh, given to Christ or ascribed to Christ over His church because He redeemed them, so over His people from all over the land. Now listen to this. Verse 10, you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So far, so good. Then I looked, and I heard voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Does it sound to you that Jesus is in charge here, that he is the master? So, of course, there is no transaction mentioned here. Christ's death and His triumphant resurrection become the ground for Him receiving power, wealth, wisdom, honor, glory, and blessing. So, in that sense, you can say that He bought the rights to the cosmos through His death and resurrection. I think that is firmly established. And this scene is made especially clear as it comes to His ownership of His church. But Christ did not, does not merely own His church. He owns everything. and that's, so, so even if we understand it in that way, we look, we look then back at this text in 2 Peter. So even these false prophets who deny Christ are still denying the Master who has ownership over them. 
they can't claim, well, we don't believe in you. We're, you know, we, we, don't, we don't trust you. We're not proclaiming the gospel that Peter is proclaiming. So what? It doesn't change a thing. They are denying the master who has every rightful claim upon their lives. So in that sense, they're denying the master. Even if, even if the atonement is not in view here, the point is, is that Christ owns them. And he gained that right in light of his, on the basis of his death, resurrection, and finally his ascension. So listen to this. We go on in, in uh, Revelation 5, verse 13. And I heard every created thing which is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth or on the sea and all things in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be the blessing, the honor and glory and the dominion forever and ever. So regardless of whether this is talking specifically about God the Father, referring directly to these Old Testament Exodus passages, or to Jesus Christ, one thing has to be made very clear, is that God executes His role from heaven through His Son. There is no division among them. And Christ, in a very real way, does have the right over everyone. Whether or not the atonement is in view. Okay, so here's one more thing to think about, blazing through our time this morning. But here's another thing to think about. Um, I got this. If, you, if you've never read this book, you need to stop what you're doing and read it. It's uh, by John Owen called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, in my humble opinion, probably the best Puritan work out there. Um, it's, actually a, it's actually a polemic against universal atonement. He is, he is defending um, particular redemption. So in that book, Owen makes actually a very valid point that can kind of lend itself to us understanding it. And it's this word, it goes back to this word, bought. And as we've stated already, it's most likely not a reference to uh, the atoning death of Jesus Christ, but to point us to a, a different act of Christ's delivering work. So here's, here, here's what this means. If you look further on, uh, further on in this text, so look at 2 Peter 2, and I believe it is verse 20. He says this, and this is, again, talking about false teachers. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So you could say in this transaction, in this, in this, in this purchasing, in this buying of, of this visible, apparent new covenant community in which there were actual unbelievers and false teachers, um, you, could, you could say that there was a special kind of deliverance where, atone, where the atoning work of Christ didn't apply. Strictly by virtue of being a part of uh, the, new, the new covenant church in the sense of involvement in showing up to Lord's Day worship, right? In partaking of the love feast, right? They did all the, Christ, the, 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 the churchy things, right? And yet they were not regenerate. We've seen this in, in, in the lives of many individuals. There is a particular respite from the cares and dangers of this world when you spend time at a local church. You may be completely unregenerate. You may hate God in your heart, but you obviously see and take part of the blessings that are present in the local church. I think the writer of the Hebrews gets at the same thing. He uses language, if you remember, in Hebrews chapter 6, which seems to indicate a loss of salvation. These are people who have part, right, partaken of the Holy Spirit, it goes so far to say. 
They seem to be Christians. They, 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 they are visible and active in the New Covenant community, and yet they forsake it. They apostatize from it in such a way that it's impossible to renew them under repentance. And I think these very same people are in view, just in a different congregation. But there is a sort of deliverance that takes place. They escape the pollution of the world, right? They escape, in, in some form or another, corruption. Because if you're hanging out with the church, you're not hanging out with those corrupting influences. So in that sense, you are free from them. In that sense, you are delivered from them. And that's another un- a way we can understand uh, this word, bought. So there's, there's plenty of ways to think about this. Again, a lot of information, but it's, it's, it's interesting and I would say quite enjoyable to sort of move through these passages and, and they're worth a second look. And that's why context is so important. So this in no way we can conclude compromise, compromises the teaching that when Christ died, He paid in full the actual penalty for all who believe. He dies in the place of His sheep and not a drop of His blood is wasted, right? But whatever the case, whatever the exact interpretation may be, here is the great crime. Let us not get distracted from, what is, from, from, from the horrific nature of what is going on here. And that is denying the master who has claim over their lives. And denial of the master, of course, can come in many forms. There's many manifestations of it. But in the history of God's people, there are some who, that stand out. I want us to kind of think about this before moving on in this text, especially in the days ahead. What are the, some of the fundamental denials that are going on today, that have kind of always been key throughout church history, even in the time of Israel. Let's name a few. I think fundamentally is this, a denial of His Lordship. We get that directly from the text. Christ, God, is Master. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is the first thing that is going on here. They are denying His Lordship through their apostate teaching. And deny Him His right to rule is to smile at Him as your teeth are shattered. It is brazen. It is rebellious. It's a denial of His holiness. That is to say, by word or conduct, to accuse God of not being with His people. It is a kind of hopeless yet stubborn despair that asserts that God has abandoned us. I think the same thing is in view here. Here's another one. It is a denial. To deny the Master is is to deny the Son. Right? God loves His Son. He loves His Son. He delights in His Son and has handed all judgment over to His Son. He declares to the entire universe. You could read Colossians 1. You could read Psalm 2, Psalm 110, which He declares to the entire universe, to kings and nations and angels, worship My Son. Worship Him. So to deny the Son in any sense, His humanity, His deity, His right to rule, his sufficiency and power to save. To deny Him as the sole object of our faith is to deny the Master in damnable fashion. That's why the church has to confront this madness and stop giving it so much quarter. In this, in this sense, the church has to stop being so tolerant. In this sense, the church has to stop being so loving. We have to come to develop a holy hatred of seeing a misrepresentation of our Lord and thus seeing His name drug through the mud. Here's another one, and I think this is especially in view in this text, is a denial of His judgment. 
very strong in this book. Remember, Peter is writing warning of the parousia, right? That Christ is going to show up and judge apostate Jerusalem. And let me tell you, that's going to reverberate through the entire Roman Empire, wherever these Judaizers are. Very strong in this book. So to deny his judgment is to insult his righteous character, to say that he will not avenge sin, that he will wink at it, that he will violate the statutes of his own patience, that he will not avenge sin to its full extent. See, remember that in chapter 1, Peter and those who stand with him were, be, were being accused of following cleverly devised tales. What is this cleverly devised tale, you ask? Jesus isn't going to judge. Look how much time has gone by. Clearly, we've mistaken this. We've mistaken his intent. Clearly, the Lord was mistaken. He didn't know what he was talking about. Cleverly devised tales. But all that to say, friends, do not get too overwhelmed about defending particular redemption. It's not the point of the passage. It's Peter bringing to light the jaw-droppingly horrific apostasy that is already taking hold in the early church and one that I pray does not take hold of our, in our own midst. You know, today we kind of refer to that as easy believism. That's been quite a beast to beat back. That all we have to do is just say a word or pray a prayer, walk an aisle or sign a card, and we're in, right? We're in for all eternity. And yet, at the same time, deny Christ's prerogative over our lives, to deny Him as Master, to deny His Lordship, to deny His commandments, to walk in brazen disobedience and declare, I am Him, I am His. See, it's, it never went away. So we must stand at attention and continue to affirm and embrace Him as Lord, to love Him and keep His commandments by faith. Should not let it take hold in our midst. And let's look at this. Because the penalty is sudden. It is swift, right? So we move on in our text. And I'm going to kind of, just so you know where I'm going, it says, they will bring swift destruction upon themselves. So I'm going to move that part of the passage down to verse 3. So we'll hit verse 2 right now. So we could call this their, their deviation, right? Listen to this. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be denied. See, unfortunately, sin of this kind does not stay isolated. You will notice, and it has been noticed by many theologians, many pastors, in fact, it has been seen in many pastors, this, this idea of, of sensuality. That is typically, almost universally, something that follows on the heels of teaching false gospels. We see it everywhere. It remains a particular pitfall for pastors. Of course, the danger is when people like this become seen as leaders in the church and then they engage in sensual behavior, right? Living for the pleasures of the flesh. They get followers, and what do their followers do? They look at them and say, I thought that was sinful. The teacher says, oh no, it's fine. We have liberty. We have our liberty in Christ to do this, to live for the pleasures of the flesh rather than live in purity. Sounds good. I'm on board. So it says many will follow their sensuality. So there is this 
very terrible divergence that goes on here because we as Christ's church are to live lives of, of purity, right? We are to forsake sensuality. We are to forsake sexual immorality. We are called to be faithful to one another, sexually pure and within the blessed confines of marriage, to be faithful to our husbands and wives. That is, I tell you, that today remains one of the primary differences between believers in Jesus Christ and the unbelieving world is our view on human sexuality. It's a very strict one, and yet the Master commands it. And it is only by God's grace and by the the inner working of the Holy Spirit that we are able to walk in step with such a a ridiculous command. Because in Roman paganism, there, there were very little guardrails and so, no, and so, lest we forget, look at what's happening here. There is, in a sense, and you see this throughout the New Testament, and I think we're seeing it in our own country today, there is this perverse partnership between those in the church and those in the government realm. You notice as time went on, what happened was that apostate Jews eventually partnered with pagan Rome in order to persecute the church. I think we see a similar thing today. There are churches, there are leaders of churches that are partnering with the government and then going and telling their churches, hey, the government has said this. You need to obey the government, right? God has instituted it, you need to obey it. We can't go down that rabbit trail today. What I simply wish to establish is the fact that this is going on in a way that perhaps may come to surprise us in a very unpleasant and unexpected way. That, as it were, Leaders in the church have tried to join Christ to Caesar. And because of this, many follow the sensuality of Rome. Many take the commands of Rome and impose them upon the church in such a way so that the law of Caesar supersedes the law of of Christ. And I would say this should not be, but this partnership is really starting to materialize. And so as the church, we have to prepare our own hearts to stand against it and say, no, we will not, we will, we will not, we will not bow, we will not compromise. Christ is king and his law prevails. His law supersedes all. And within that law is a protection for the church, and one of them is a protection of the church's purity. And you will find that as Rome bleeds into the church, sensuality is inevitable. And it typically begins with the teacher, with the elder, with the pastor, who people look at and say, well, if if the elder is doing it, surely it's okay for me to do it. Because the tone in that church has already been set. And so Peter acknowledges here, yes, many will follow their sensuality. Many, not a few. So this will be something that will be clear. You will see people who claim Christ following in their sensuality forsaking the purity of the gospel, forsaking righteous living, and will do only what pleases the flesh. And just as a, just to, just to say very carefully and very clearly, it's not that physical pleasures are unlawful, but what Peter is talking about here vis-a-vis sensuality is to say, is to bring light to the fact that these are unlawful physical acts. This is living for the flesh, outside of the bounds of what God has prescribed in His Word. But this seems to be a mark. I mean, we see throughout church history, false teacher, show me his view on sexuality. Show me his practices. What does he deem as acceptable? 
Or what is he doing in secret? Seems to be something that is fundamental, that follows right on the heels of false gospels. Once you deny Christ, you deny his design for being human and for bearing his image. That's usually the first thing that goes out the window. That's why when we step out the church, that's one of the most profound things we see is sexual perversion. Of course, because it deviates from God's design. If you deny him as master, you're going to deny his commands. And so throughout history, we've seen an innumerable number of scandals in that regard. And because of this, Paul, or Peter says, because of this deviation, look at this. The way of the truth will be maligned. How sad, right? The way of truth being maligned. The truth is the most precious commodity. It is the currency of the church. The truth is something, again, when we preach the truth of Christ, we're not, we're not preaching naked facts. We are preaching life-giving truth. Truth that transforms. Truth that conforms us to the image of Christ. We must treasure truth and not play fast and loose with it. But it says here, the truth will be maligned. It'll be misrepresented. See, the word used for malign here isn't simply one for twisted. It's actually the word we use for blasphemy. And what is blasphemy in its purest form? It's, it's ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. It's witnessing the Holy Spirit at work and saying, this is Satan. This is satanic activity. This is what is happening. And of course, of course that's what's happening because those, those folks who, who, who witness this will see these teachers spread their doctrine and they will see the fruit of, the, uh, fruit of that, the bad fruit that comes out of it, and will conclude there's no power in the gospel, right? That's the first thing that they will say. This isn't the work of the Holy Spirit. This is as much the work of demons as they say my own paganism is. That is exactly what's happening. See, we have to understand the horrific nature of this. This isn't something that we can react to casually. Nor can we be careless in our own time about the truth of God being maligned. That is, to see abuse hurled at it. To see it reviled. So let me tell you, the enemies of Christ are all too willing. They stand, at, they stand watch, waiting for an opportunity, waiting for some kind of scandalous hypocrisy to emerge so that they can say, hey, you see that? This, these Christians claim that there's some kind of life-changing power in their gospel, that they're different, that they, do, that they are not worldly, but they're doing the exact same things we are. Hypocrites. There's no power in this. Oh, man. Would that the church were on its knees pleading to God for mercy should we let this happen. This is exactly what people did to Jesus in His ministry and crucifixion. Right? To see, to look, they looked at Jesus and saw the work of the Lord perfectly, flawlessly executed and yet still blasphemed Him still hurled abuse at him as he hung on the cross. See, you're like this, then every Christian must be like this. That's why in Romans 2.24, Paul, I think, talking about the same people, says God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles 
because of you. So Jews were to be a light to the, to the Gentiles, to the nations, so that God's name would what? Not be blasphemed, but be blessed. We come here and we bless the name of God. When we, when we proclaim the gospel, we are commanding people, yes, believe, trust in the Lord, but bless His holy name. The name of God is meant to be blessed that we, so that we may ascribe everything that is honorable and truthful and loving and glorious to His name and to not entertain a denial of that name. So that's what happens when we deny the Master His right to rule in this church and for His gospel to stand alone and for His kingdom to reign supreme. The truth becomes subjective, right? That's why we see so much of this. Oh, he's just speaking his truth. I'm up here, I'm just preaching my truth. If I say that, throw rocks at me. Okay? Because I have clearly deviated. (laughs) The truth is subjective. The truth is despised, right? The truth ends up being hated. They don't want to hear it anymore. The truth ultimately no longer matters. Why? Because it seems inconsequential. Because we are proclaiming a word of power which seems to not be manifest because we're denying the lordship of God in our midst. See, Christianity will be maligned specifically because within the life of Christ, we have a life of purity, righteousness, and also in addition to generosity, right? We are to be those who give of ourselves. We are servants to one another. We serve our community rather than looking for ways to get the upper hand. So look at verse 3, same thing. And in their greed, not only will the truth be maligned, but in their greed they will exploit you with false words. See, these people are greedy. They're not giving. They're not ready to, as Paul says, pour their life out like a drink offering. They want to see how they can take advantage of you. They do what they do out of greed, not love and care. This word greed, of course, is covetousness. To be covetous, you know, we see that in the Ten Commandments, right? You see something that someone has and you want to take it from them. I think a good parallel word would be envy. You seek to deprive them of something so that you can have it. So these false teachers and their greediness want to despoil you. Paul describes this to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 6, speaking of those who advocate a different doctrine than that preached by Paul. And they are, he describes them thusly. They are those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, right? A means of material or financial gain. Or you could even say, human gain as if they can, they can convince you to be at their disposal. But Paul says this, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. See, godliness should not have riding at its side a, a desire for personal gain and wealth and, and fame. The godliness, true godliness, is grounded in contentment. We look to Christ and we are content because we understand that if we have Him, we have all. And then verse 7, for we have brought nothing into this world so we, can take, we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So he's warning, Paul is warning uh, the Ephesian congregation there under the care of Timothy about that very thing. Once again, to say, you see how broad this error is? You see how broad this influence is? It's everywhere. And, and, and it seems like the seed is germinated. And as we, as we illustrated last week about the Ashtoreth, the Ashtoreth has grown, or the Asherah has grown 
by the altar, that is, the living sacrifices of God's people. They are interrupting our worship. They are distorting our view of God. And these desires plunge men into ruin and destruction. And they exploit you, he says. It's an economic term describing one who revels for the purpose of, who travels for the purpose of buying and selling. What is this saying? They are making merchandise of you. They are treating you like currency rather than the precious flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they're seeking to do. This is, complete, this is the complete opposite of what we are called to do toward one another, how we're supposed to act toward one another in Christian love and service. So we're not to exploit one another. We're to exploit opportunities to love and serve one another. Not to make one another a, a personal currency. Not to put one another at our disposal. Not to treat you like chattel. No, we consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. But this is the opposite. This is a form of spiritual exploitation. They don't, these false teachers don't care about spiritual growth. They don't care about the body of Christ. They don't care about practicing the one another's, as we're commanded clearly. They don't care about the kingdom of God. Their only interest, and I, say, I, I think this in, in due time manifests itself in an undeniable way. You can only be a poser for so long before your true intentions are revealed. You can only do for so long before it's clearly seen that they are in this to profit personally, to profit in a material way. And one way they do that is exploiting you. You realize a false teacher can, can operate way more efficiently, can end up gaining way more materially if they have supporters if they have people coming to their defense, if they have their personal sycophants riding shotgun. Way, way, way easier to do that and then go to the next victim, the next hapless church, if it comes to that. But that is their intent. And finally, I think we've got a little bit of time here, finally we come to their downfall. In spite of the scandalous and horrific nature and presence of the false teachers, the church can take great joy in knowing that the Lord Himself will destroy them. He will bring an end to them. And so we go back to verse 1 regarding their downfall. That even though they bring destructive heresies, that even though they deny the Master who bought them, they will bring swift destruction upon themselves. Right? And their judgment from long ago, verse 3, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So this word swift destruction... That's the first thing that should stand out. Swift, of course, could manifest itself in a few ways, but I think immediate to the context is this. Remember, they are denying the parousia, Christ's judgment upon Jerusalem and thereby the entire Judaistic pillar, right? The entire edifice of apostate Judaism is going to be put down. So Peter's writing this when this judgment on Jerusalem is mere years away. And so, so of course, that swift judgment would kill off many of these apostate operatives. Did you know there were many prophets in Jerusalem at that time who, until the very end, prophesied that God would intervene and break the yoke of the Romans up until the bitter end? That's what was proclaimed. God's going to send us a Messiah. God's going to deliver us from Rome. He's going to crush them. Just you wait. Just you wait. Just you wait. Again and again and again. And of course, the Romans crushed the city instead. It's one of the reasons we read uh, Revelation 18. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It's my personal conviction that Babylon is used to illustrate the apostate city of Jerusalem. 
And as, and as is made clear in those couple of chapters, especially 17, Jerusalem had at that time partnered with Rome to persecute the church. And so, Jesus Himself is visiting them in swift judgment to put them down. And He uses the Roman army to do so. Because as Lord of heaven and earth, the Roman army is also Christ's army. Chew on that for a bit. He's in charge of them. And so for those prophets, these false teachers outside of the city of Jerusalem, their judgment is manifest in seeing their whole system completely destroyed. There's nothing to go back to, right? As long as Jerusalem stood, and in fact, as long as the temple stood, they had justification to keep preaching what they were preaching. As long as the temple stood, their system, however apostate, was still intact in their view. But once the temple was obliterated, they had nothing. They had no credibility. It had been, that system was entirely broken, just as Hebrews said, just as the writer of the Hebrews says. Right? Whatever is obsolete is fading away. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, that whole Judaic enterprise collapsed. Any credibility they may have had was gone because they can't point to the temple anymore because that was the core of the system. So it was swift also in the sense that it comes in an, unex- in an unexpected manner. The false teacher in the times of ancient Israel never imagined that if, as a dreamer, his prophecy came, turned out to be false, he was to be put to death immediately, put to death swiftly, because he thought he was speaking for the Lord. So in that sense, swift judgment or swift destruction means unexpected. You didn't, see it, you didn't think it was going to happen, but it did. Did the prophets of Baal ascend Mount Carmel thinking they would be chased down and slaughtered that day? Certainly not. They went up with the confidence of a king and were put down like animals. They didn't expect it. They expected to win. Harkens back to the days of Judah's rebellion. In the days of Jeremiah, peace, peace, right? There is no peace is what they're saying. They're saying peace. Judgment will not come. Don't panic. Don't fear. We have shalom all as it should be. We hear it today, especially from our government officials. Trust the process, right? A bunch of stuff is going wrong. The economy is crashing. Stocks are down. People are having a hard time putting food on the table. Gas prices are through the roof. Trust the process, right? We'll all learn to love this equal share of misery. Trust it. There is no peace. Consider Jeremiah 28. Starting at verse 10, we have this, uh, the prophet Hananiah. Look what happened to him. He's a great illustration of this sudden destruction that comes upon false teachers. It says that Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. So he said, yeah, don't worry. Trust the process. Babylon is mighty, but the Lord will deliver us. Same thing that the first century Judaizers are saying. But then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, right? And he says, go and speak to Hananiah, saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the necks of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. 
So that happened. That's the word of the Lord. But then Jeremiah says to Hananiah, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year, you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. See, history repeats itself in 2 Peter. The very same thing is happening. They are counseling rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah, the prophet, died the same year in the seventh month. Thus, says the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and it came to pass. So, did Hananiah expect to die? No, not at all. He expected to live as a prophet and for the Lord to come and deliver them. But he died suddenly, unexpectedly, and that without remedy. And so, in the same spirit, Paul tells the Thessalonians, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, get this, peace and safety, shalom, shalom, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Don't miss, friends, the force of Peter's words. This is a form of spiritual suicide, and they will have no one to blame but themselves. So even though they were among the brethren, broke bread, sang the same songs, participated in the life of the new covenant community, perhaps were baptized, heard the gospel preached with utmost clarity, and even witnessing the apostles' miraculous works, they still finally rejected the gospel in hard-hearted fashion. So their destruction is not idle, right? It's not asleep. And that's how Peter closes this section. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is some comfort to the people of God who cry out to God and say, Lord, when will you avenge us? When will you intervene and put down all of this evil, right? All of this falsehood, all these things that misrepresent you and rebel against you and drag the precious name of your son through the mud and blaspheme him daily. Are you going to do anything? And Peter says, not only is God going to do something and soon, but the process has already started. Don't worry. Don't doubt. Trust in the Lord. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. See, while Egypt slept, the destroying angel did not. He came and exercised vengeance upon them and so set the people of Israel free. If Pharaoh had any fear of God, he would have he wouldn't have been able to sleep that night. He would have listened to Moses. But God knows. God knows what His people are enduring. Right? Peter will go on to talk about the flood, right? In Genesis 6, God says, My spirit will not always strive with men. I will number his days to 120 years. Right? The process had already started. It was not asleep. It's like, a, it's like the car. If you've seen such insanity, a car parked on railroad tracks. See, the train was already moving, perhaps hours before. It was already moving. The problem was that the car parked in the way of the train. In the same way, false prophets park in the way of a judgment that was planned long ago and is already on an irreversible path. And unfortunately, false teachers just rolled onto the tracks and were broadsided and destroyed. Nothing glamorous about it, nothing pretty about it, but it is completely destructive. Listen to what Barnes says. A sinner should never forget that there is an eye of unslumbering vigilance always upon him. 
and that everything that he does is witnessed by one who will yet render exact justice to all men. No person, however careful to conceal his sins, or however bold in transgression, or however unconcerned he may seem to be, can hope that justice will always linger, or destruction always slumber. If that is describing you, I urge you today to repent from denying the Master. To stop living in such a way where you think judgment will never come. Because the process has already started. If you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God, Scripture says, already abides on you. It's already over you. So take the, the Word of the Lord seriously and flee to His grace. Believe the Gospel, repent of your sins, and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Because it is only in Christ where you can be free of this judgment. Because the good news is that God has already judged sin in His Son. And to come under Him is to have your sins forgiven, removed from you as far as the east is from the west, and also to bring you in blessed communion and fellowship with the living God and with the good Savior, Jesus Christ. But bear that in mind. Justice will not always linger, and destruction will not always slumber. And if you are outside of Christ, it is inevitable that in the same way that it has come for these false teachers, it will come to all who remain in unbelief. So repent, believe while there is still time, and live for the King and His kingdom. So, so closing by this, the church's response, and I think most of these are pretty easy, they're, they're pretty self-explanatory, but just to remind ourselves, the church must confront this. No more complacency, no longer standing by while this freight train of false teachers and false teaching goes by, and to say someone else can surely do it. It's also a demand for truth. We must also demand truth. First and foremost, you must demand the truth of Scripture in your church. You must demand truth from your elders. You must demand truth from Jeremy and I. Do not let us shortchange you. Do not let us cheapen the gospel by withholding essential truth that is conducive to building us up and keeping us on guard and a truth that confronts the unbelief of this world and the compromise of the church. So we must always be on guard. Demand vigilance from one another so that we do not fall into the same judgment as those who are trying to deceive you. And above all, demand that Christ is Lord in this place. In our practice. We understand He's Master anyway. But may He be Lord in the sense that we recognize it and that we cherish it. That we cherish His presence with us knowing that He has spared us from judgment and that He will deliver us from false teaching and false teachers. And that His Gospel will always prevail. I love it that we're on the winning side, and I love it that we serve a Savior who is victorious. So in light of that, let's pray. Thanks for hanging with me. We had to get through that text. Father, thank You so much for Your faithfulness to us. Thank You for this, for this passage. Again, many, many deep things con- contained in it. Um, many things to consider regarding uh, the fact that You are Master, that You have bought us. But we can even experience that in a deeper way, that you are Lord. 
that you have not only bought us, but you have redeemed us with, your, with the blood of your Son. And Father, far be it from us to deny you in any sense, to deny anything that is truthful about you, to deny your, your reign in our midst, to deny your grace, uh, to deny your commandments, Lord, even to deny you by denying one another, by withholding Christian love and affection, by withholding a desire to see one another sanctified and conformed to Christ's likeness. Lord, we are not called to be rebels. We are called to be your sheep. We're called to be your people. We're called to be a kingdom of priests. May we delight in that calling. May we be fruitful. May we see your kingdom advance. And we see so many opportunities even today where we can answer that call and take up that mantle and, and represent you and to be your faithful ambassadors. To not only not deny the Master, but to affirm, to testify of the Master. And I realize we have an opportunity coming up this week at our state's capital. May you bless that endeavor. Um, may we be able to confront unrighteousness in the public square and to go to our unbelieving leaders and declare who are these uncircumcised Philistines who rail against the living God, who come against the God of Israel. May we speak truth boldly, but may we present Your Gospel graciously that that will be a day of salvation and that in the long run we will be able to save these precious uh, babies who are being slaughtered daily. Lord, we desire uh, to see Your kingdom come and Your will be done even in ways where life is seen as precious. So in that sense, Lord, may You be with us. And in a variety of other ways, Lord, we want to stand for You and stand for truth and to stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without You, and so we prevail upon You today for that grace. All these things, Father, we commit to You as well as our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.